0: It's Great Mondays Radio. I'm Josh Levine, your host, founder of Great Mondays. We help executives from hyper-growth, technology, and social enterprise organizations build cultures that attract, engage, and retain top talent. If you'd like to be a guest on our program, hang out for about 20 minutes, and I'll tell you how. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Great Monday's radio. I am uh, so excited to have with me today Melanie Huggins, who is the executive director of Richmond Library in South Carolina. Um, and I, I'm uh, as you might know, I'm I'm, I'm pretty passionate about um, libraries and have uh, interacted with and and have colleagues and friends at libraries across the country. And so I'm thrilled to have. Melanie here. She's the executive director. Welcome, Melanie. Thanks for coming on Great Mondays Radio.
1: Hey, Josh. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. How long have you been executive director uh, at the library?
1: So I've been here. I just started my 15th year at Richland Library here in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, I've been in the profession for 30 years and in management um, and administration for almost all but two of those. so
0: uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, that seems unbelievable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you have and and we we discussed previously there's some been some you know big changes and transitions during your time. Um, and I'm really interested to know about kind of some of the some of the the shifts that you have seen or been part of, and some of the challenges that you've you've tried to um, overcome and and how maybe you've done that. Tell, can you tell me a little bit about some of those those opportunities, some of the things that have changed at the library and and the context for some of those? Because I think that's kind of where where the opportunities really a- always lay.
1: Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think so., um, you know, when I started here in 2009, I inherited, Um, a really strong library system, award-winning, beloved, uh, you know, and relatively in the terms of like library world, new, Um, you know, all of our branches, uh, we, at the time, we had a main library and 10 branches, and they had all been built since, you know, in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, and library, the library lifespan, that's a new branch, that's not like, you know, a, a new system, that's not like a library in a, that has like three Carnegie's in it or something yeah. like that, you know? Right. Yeah. So, um, I inherited this really strong system. And so it seemed to me, and I guess the moment where I kind of started to realize that in this system, um, there was a culture shift that needed to happen was, and I think a way a lot of this comes to light for us is in the systems, um, and policies, practices. Uh, I was seeing practices that made a whole heck of a lot of sense to the librarians and the library, uh-huh. staff, but zero sense to the customer. And so the first time that happened, I was on the floor with staff and uh, they were showing me their proud new, like new books display. And I was, you know, asking them questions. And I said, what are all these dot?" these stickers on the spine of the book, what do those mean? What do these colored coded dots mean? And, and the staff person at the time was like, you know, it's, it's our system for how long a book can check out. And so of course, like if you were in a shoe store, you know, and you see the colored dots on the shoe boxes, you know, that means there's a sale of some kind. So of course I look up and around and I'm like, okay, well, where's the key for this? Like, right, how would right. I know as a customer? So anyway, you know, we were, you know, I was like, I kept asking questions and the staff was getting a little annoyed with me. Like, well, it's just the system. And I'm like, well, how do you decide which book gets to check out for seven days as opposed to 21 days? And they were like, It's because of how long it is, and I was at that moment just like, "Oh, that makes zero sense to me as a reader." Because they were, if a book was long, you needed it longer. If it was short, you could read it faster. I mean, it was all of these assumptions we were making, Uh and that's when I realized: is our staff doesn't even have the same, um, the same view of what the customer's needs and motivations and goals are. They're developing all of these systems around how they think a library should be run. And I think that was kind of the beginning for me of we've got to reinvent the customer experience here from the um, outside in. Let's get feedback from customers. Let's find out what they really want and develop systems. And so that was really the beginning of the transformation. And it wasn't until... You know, years later, that I started realizing that what I was doing in committing to a brand and committing to service design as a methodology was recreating a culture.
0: Right. Did you find that? So, so that that story, I think, is emblematic of um, many organizations where. Um, a thing has been done a certain way and then they're frustrated. They, they may be frustrated and say, Hey, this is what we do. Um, Did you continue to feel that pushback when you're like, Hey, we're going to start thinking about changing these things, or maybe you didn't even say that. And and you were like, we're going to do some research first, Mm -hmm. right? You and I know, and probably a lot of my listeners know that, you know, doing customer research and understanding from their point of view is a big, aha, that's a huge input. Do and did you tell employees that was going to happen? Did they um, say, "Well, that's great. Let's do let's do that"? Or you know, how did you go about engaging them? How did they respond? Because that's a big piece of that is the changing of the culture. It's changing how people do the thing that do their work.
1: Right, right. I think I I think I would say it first started in the way that I engage with staff and the questions that I ask. So if I said, hey, we're going to, you know, go from uh, staff assisted checkout to self-checkout, you know, of course, this was big back in the 90s and, you know, and, and 2000, mm-hmm. like, how do we do that? And what I would hear from staff was, well, they won't like that. And my first question is, who is they? Like, right. They, right. And then, um, and, and then the second question was, and how do we know? They won't like it. So it was more about centering the customer's needs, motivations, goals, and the experience we were trying to create for the customer. And so I, I got here in 2009. And by 2013, and I tell everybody, it takes some years to change a culture, right? And then it takes even more years to iterate and care and feed and care and feed and care and feed the culture. Yes. Uh, but after four years of being here, I had staff going through service design boot camps, really buying into this idea that we are designing for a target audience. And that is difficult for libraries, because libraries like to say we serve everyone. everyone. But you can't <laughs> serve everyone well, and you've got to know who your target audience is for each program, for each initiative, for each service. And so by in, within four years, we were speaking that language internally. And that coincidentally was the year that we put forward a major bond referendum in our city that turned us into a one library, 10 branch library to a one main library, 10 branch library to a one main library, 12 branch library with every single library has been renovated from top to bottom. Mm. Um, and so we actually got to create the environment and the physical, um, You know, space and qualities that we wanted in the physical space to actually match that customer experience. All of that, I think, you know, culture to me is like a puzzle. It's like, um, it's, you know, it's it's some combination of your brand, your promises to your community, your the way you design services, how you position yourself strategically in the community, and then how all that comes together to empower staff to embody all of those things you're promising people you know
0: that's right that's right i i i agree i think that concept of a promise so i come from brand and and we you know we talk about a a brand promise but once you make a promise you have to keep it how do you keep it so um i am i'm really interested in the choice you made to what you just said run your staff through service design boot camps because I don't that that seems like a a a very deliberate decision and investment. Why would an organization need to, um, do something like that, whether it's a service design boot camp or whatever you might call it, right? Like management, tr- like a management training, or maybe we'll call it a culture design boot camp, like whatever it might be. Um, that's a lot of time, effort, energy. Um, is that necessary? I mean, how did you make that decision? Because otherwise, I don't think a lot of organizations would necessarily think to do that. They would say, this is how we do things now, do it.
1: Yeah. Well, that doesn't last if you do that. Um, (laughs) You know, that's really hard. So I would say um, most library directors that I know are super intelligent people and they understand and can envision the type of customer interactions they want on a day-to-day basis in our library. And for us, learning how to do service design and creating our own service design training and tools and creating a common language around that was just the tool that we chose Mm. to help us create and design those experiences. Um, I felt like I I got our library pretty far, you know, getting them to understand that every experience that a customer, or even internal customers. So I also want to say, this is not just external facing, right? This is the way that we treat each other as well. Good. I, I think I did the, the most I could do with the skills that I have and the knowledge that I had at the time to get our organization thinking about every experience has a before, a during, and an after. And, you know, it's just like a, a good story, which librarians should kind of understand, you know, as a before, during, and after. And I felt like we were putting a lot of emphasis on the during, but we weren't thinking about what the customer journey was before or even after. So that's the language we started with. Like, who are we trying to serve? And what's their experience before they ever step through the door? They need something from us. How do they find out about us? What's that whole arc of that, you know, that journey map that we call it now, right? Because we know the words. <laughs> so we were doing that work. Um, but we got to a point where we needed to bring in some expertise to help us really create um, those internal um, capacity to do this work on an ongoing basis. I didn't want to just keep bringing someone in to solve all of our problems. Right. I wanted my staff to know how to use the tools to constantly iterate and th- and put the customer in the center and so that's why we you know went the service design route because it made the most sense for us and i mean i just can't recommend it enough because now we've got we speak this language here mm. um, And it's, and we shorthand it and it doesn't take a two day long workshop to figure out something anymore. It can take like two hours, you know, it's just, it's, it's a really nice way of working and it has totally changed the culture.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's the fish fishing (laughs) analogy, right? Like you have share, you now have a shared experience and they have, they have experienced, um, why this is important as opposed to what you need to do so that they can internalize and actually respond in a more productive way. Mm -hmm. That makes-
1: Yes, yes. Oh, I'm so excited. I just just thought of something. Um, The other thing is, the, the thing that I love about service design and about it being, you know, that double diamond and it's iterative and you're always going back and going tweaking and making it better, is it also does something that I need li- think libraries desperately need to feel comfortable with, and that is testing and prototyping, um, you mm-hmm. know. We're not really good at letting people see the sausage while it's being made, and I think we need to get better about that. So when we were renovating our buildings, we knew we wanted to custom design our desk, our interaction point. so we built some out of plywood and used them for a while so that people could say, you know, and before you spend $30,000 on some really swanky millwork, you know, make sure it's going to work for you. That's a physical way that we do that, but we're we're testing something right now in one of our branches, You know, an underutilized rural location. We've basically turned into a print and design studio and we're testing out this concept for customers to be able to come in and have unlimited printing and be able to pr- print beautiful photographs and use a cricket or a laminator or a binder and get all of those services in this rural community that doesn't have an Office Depot or a Staples um, to see if that's something we can replicate in our own
0: lives. Mm. Oh, interesting. So you're using that to your, so you thought, how did, how did you even land on that? I mean, that you're, you're like, you know what we need, right? You didn't wake up in the morning and say, you know what we need is a laminator and a spiral <laughs> O binder.
1: Yeah. I mean, customer observation, you know customer observation and and knowing the community i mean this is a rural community that's seen a declining population um and you know fax faxing it sounds like like you know i would love for be, to be able to see by show of hands of the podcast listeners when's the last time you've had to fax anything right you know but faxing is still a a way that Socioeconomically challenged people have to do business it is still a big part of their life and there are very few places. So we, we provide free faxing, right? So we're seeing people coming for that service. We talk to them about other things they are doing. We're seeing them designing their um, you know, wedding programs and their church bulletins and all of these things, uh, observing that the traffic in the building, the people are only staying for a few minutes because they're faxing, copying, and they're leaving. Well, what's the adjacent you know, what are the adjacent possible things to that, that we could be doing? And so that's why we're testing this out there.
0: That's so interesting. Uh, What are some, are there other, other services that you guys, I mean, uh, again, this is just Josh fascination with library question, less culture, but more, um, how else are people using libraries? Are there like unexpected ways? Because I know um, then in our work with the DC Public Library, there's a shift in w- how staff perceives the role of the library, right? They have, they set up a co-working space with, with the computers for people to use, right? So that's a great way to do it. And a traditional library sciences, uh, you know, employee is not, you know, may not understand that you need, you want laminating, you want all these things. So you're observing, tell me, are there other Um, In your experience, maybe it was previously, maybe it's happening now, other unexpected use use cases that people are um, coming to the library for?
1: Well, yes, I think we're super fortunate that we did have that bond referendum and we were able to renovate our buildings from top to bottom. By about 2018, they were all done. And one of the key things we did in every single location is we added, 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 added meeting room space. And so in our main library, we went from having like eight meeting rooms to 28 meeting rooms. Oh, my gosh. So um, remote work. Did we know that the future was going to be remote work when we did that? No, but man, we took a lucky guess with some of that stuff because we are packed every day with people who no longer go into an office who just want to have a quiet place to be and have fast internet and maybe some of those other services, you know, uh, all the time. Um, So, you know, what's rebounded the most since COVID is meeting room use. People coming um, in and using our physical space. And we love that. We've baked yeah. that into our strategic plan that we want to be that place where remote workers go. And they not only get access to a lovely space and fast internet, but social capital. Um, so we host, you know, one million cups is hosted here. It's the Kaufman Foundation program where all the entrepreneurs get together. We do that once a week. Um, you know, we've become this hub. For um, innovation, people with entrepreneurial mindsets, the space helps that tremendously. Um, and and the thing of going back to the thing about culture is that yeah. what happens usually is that people will other libraries or even other nonprofits or other you know community partners that we're close with here in Columbia or in our county will see what we've done. They're like, "How did you do that? Like, how did you get mm. from..." point A to point B, and I probably need to write a book about it, but, you know, how did you do it? And so I always start with, we first started really laser focusing on needs, motivations, outcomes for the customer, and Mm -hmm. really, really defining where we fit in that journey, because libraries can't do everything and some things we aren't best positioned to do. So that strategic plan piece of it. And then it was like, and what differentiates us from everybody else that wants to help people find a job or everybody else that wants to be that third space, what are the differentiators? And that's where our brand promises came in. It's like, this is how we're different because we promise these things. And then it was like, what are the things getting in our way? And some of it was policies, practices, you know, Mm -hmm. the way we onboarded might've been getting in our way. It's like, we had to make all of that stuff align and that's what's made us the culture that we are. Um, But people usually ask the question, you know, the question is always about change management. Like, how did you change? How did you get from point to point? Exactly. Walk me through the change management strategy. I was like, there was no change management strategy. There was just a focus on doing what we could do really well in the context of the community that we live in. Mm. And then provide the tools and resources that staff need to make that happen. And that's where culture comes into, you know, because we just, we have to operationalize culture in our policies and practices. So it's not left to chance
0: what would you i do you, i mean <clears throat> i think you, uh, i think libraries have a particular um challenge and opportunity incredible opportunity in that it is um most people most staff most employees of a library system are either directly interacting with customers or maybe are one step removed right it's very much in front and so you can say we're going to be, it's really important that we focus on customers in this way. A lot of organizations don't have that opportunity. And I wonder if you might have some advice or suggestions to help those um, employees that don't have a direct connection to the customer, because it almost feels like the more removed you are the 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 harder it's going to be to say oh but we need to be customer centric we need to be you know service we're serving the customer do you, do you have any suggestions or ideas i know i'm just tossing this out at you but um it i just it feels to me like this is such an important piece and there's so many companies that are out there that are just like yeah, we create a web, we create a web tool and people use that, right? There's user experience. Sure. But whatever, I'm just doing my thing back here. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, so what, what I was thinking of when you were talking is um, the, so I work at, I, I do a lot of work in and with, and volunteer and otherwise with nonprofits and philanthropic organizations. And so a lot of philanthropic organizations do not have direct contact with the clients or customers that they ultimately benefit.
0: Mm, right? Yes, exactly. So that,
1: that might be a good analogy. Perfect. That um, You know, they're out there raising money and they're, you know, doing all the things to make sure that the people who do the service have the support that they need. Um, but I think it goes back to, you know, what would I say to them about like ch- creating this culture is that I don't I don't think you can separate your company culture from the outcomes you create, even if you don't get to see those firsthand. So in in philanthropy, um, you have to do the work to talk to the organizations that you fund to better understand, you know, I'm trickling on down here to get closer and closer and closer and closer to the outcome, the, the journey that if you're funding a center for people experiencing homelessness, even if you are a foundation that you have some sense of what that's like, because we know that a good way to build more stakeholder engagement more volunteers more donors more loyalty is to tell a good story and so you got to be able to tell those stories about what's happening on the front line even if you don't do it and so you have to either you know within in the in this analogy of a philanthropic organization you got to talk to the people that you're funding and don't just ask them for the report that says how did you spend the grant money right ask them to tell you stories about the people that they've helped. Get that qualitative, feel-good mm-hmm. stuff so mm-hmm. you can take that, scoop that back and take that into your foundation or whatever and run your foundation in a way that aligns with that, those feelings and that brand, that promise that you're giving to people. I don't know, that was a little, you threw me off on that one, but I'm just thinking, I think- a No, lot no, of
0: it's great. Like
1: I think a lot of people are in that you know situation and that- they don't, what they do, whether it's a designer that's designing websites, they may not know exactly, but you, but you got to do some research to figure it out. You got to figure, you got to at least take a step back every once in a while and go, yeah, this is a great website, but how does the person who just used it feel after they use it? So tell you a story about
0: that. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, that's exactly, I love that. That's a great, Answer, and I I appreciate you (laughs) engaging with me on a on a flyer there. But um, so it reminds me of some of the stories where it's like the CEO, you know, CEO is uh, you know it's like the the server for the day or whatever it is, and so it's like you have the uh, the leaders actually get in there and learn and 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 connect. Right? There's some of those stories, but um, what what I what I I feel like is is very doable is getting. Doing the work, finding some people that will go out and actually gather those stories and learn and learn how those people, who those people are, and how they engage and how they use your product. So, even if we're talking about, you know, someone using some sort of tech product, some Mm -hmm. enterprise product, Mm -hmm. learning about those people and bringing those inside is really going to help direct and navigate people, help them navigate their choices um, and be able to lean on that and say, hey, when we're talking about a particular value, or we're talking about a particular behavior that we're emphasizing, it's not some abstract construct of like, hey, we just decided as change managers that we want to do this. It's ultimately that is who we are serving and we're doing this because we want to get it to them faster, higher quality, more interesting feature, whatever it might be. And I, so I love that idea, bring stories um, into the organization. I don't, people are so data driven these days. I really feel we are missing. There's a dearth of qualitative information. There's a dearth of stories and that's That's the most compelling that brings it to life.
1: Yeah, and that's data. So I'll give you an example of that, just a real quick example of how, I mean, we. I would I would rather, now we serve a population of, you know, our county's 700,000 people. Um, we have 13 locations, about 400 staff, whatever. I would rather talk to 12 people for one hour each about an interaction with the library than, than do a survey of a thousand people. So that is what I'm, you know, that's, we, and we've done that. We've changed whole systems and ways of working just by talking to 12 people. Yep. So that whole directed storytelling piece, you know, where you sit down with somebody and you say, tell me about the last time you checked out a book from the library, you know, and they start telling their story and you're listening and you don't have, you don't know where it's going. You're just listening and pulling out the threads. And if they say, oh, and then, you know, I thought I put the book on hold, but when I got the notice, I got to the library and it was actually the audio book and that wasn't what I wanted. Well, why was that? What happened? We. This is a real life example because we did interview people about our holds process and somebody told us that, And we went in and looked at our icons on our website, and the icon for like you know audiobook CD and whatever were very similar, and it was easy to see how somebody could accidentally put the wrong thing on hold, right? Yeah, changed a whole system because of that one story. So I, I think that being a we should libraries especially we should be cultures of stories. We should be the kind of culture that understands how important a good story is to expressing who we are and what our needs and motivations are.
0: Amazing. Amazing. So many things that I'm pulling from this. Um, do you have, you've told us a few about a few successes. Are there any, um, and you have been very successful and I don't want to take away from that, but are there any, um, experiments or, um, elements of this process that you've been through in the last 15 years that, um, that you would say failed and you learned from, is there anything that, that we can learn from, uh, your (laughs) hard (laughs) one, hard one knowledge?
1: Let's think about that. I mean, I think, okay, I'll say this about our culture here is we try to bake failure in so that it's not a big deal. So it's really hard for me to say, oh, this failed, you know, st- this failed like, you know, big time because we are iterating all the time.
0: Ah, uh, lots so, of small failures. Yes,
1: yeah, yes. Or just, and they're not even failures. They're just test, right? We're testing it. And it, this didn't work. And let's test this and let's test that. I think for me personally, I think um some, you know, some painful, a painful failure has to do more with hiring. When you, when you're hiring for cultural fit, and I know that is loaded in all kinds of ways, me saying that out loud, because people with an EDI lens might think, oh, we know what you're talking about. No, I mean, for me, really, it is about hiring for, are you going to understand that we are an organization that is highly collaborative, but really fast paced? And what does that mean together? Are you going to understand that we are, um, a, a culture that is dedicated on that is dedicated to sharing, not just sharing books and materials like libraries do, but actually sharing our entrepreneurial mindset with the community.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: so, so anyway, all of that's to say, you think you get the interview questions down that are going to get at that you think you've hired the right person they seem to have all the qualities but something's missing and so i i don't know if that's a hiring decision or an emotional you know making decisions about the emotional part of your culture or the or the quality the characteristics of somebody yeah competencies but you know i i have really unfortunately put some people in positions where they couldn't succeed because i feel like they had Eighty percent of the cultural fit, but some really important things were missing in the twenty mm. percent. Um, so yeah, that's how
0: that's do you? So how how do you attempt to prevent that mistake now?
1: Well, first of all, those are the most painful kinds of mistakes because they're dealing with people's lives, you know, and yes. people's livelihood. And yes. so
0: when you feel <laughs> so terrible about you, because yeah. <laughs> it's not there. I mean, you're like the I. It I I love. I love your perspective, right because it's not like oh, they're a crappy person. It's they weren't the I I did not see that they they were not going to be successful in this role. this is people can be the same person can be successful in one role and not another in one organization and not another. So I want to at least call that out and and point that as a positive perspective
1: right. We, we have a really diverse staff. We've worked really hard to have a diverse staff. And I mean, diversity of all ways, race, ethnicity, skill sets, thought,
0: yeah. Yeah. you
1: know, we, that we've worked really hard to do that. And I would say most of the time it works out well. I know everybody's big fans of behavioral interviewing and and all of those questions you're supposed to ask that would show how someone would react yeah. in a certain situation. I mean, yeah. certainly yeah. those are helpful. Um we do a lot of panel interviewing, you know, with a diverse team. So they're looking for things that I'm not looking for. So that's a good preventative thing. And also on a really small scale, um, if we tell somebody who's not from here or not of our team already, that we're going to interview with a panel, their reaction to that alone can tell you if they're going to be a good fit here, because we you know, it's like high school. We do a lot of group projects here. We work collaboratively a lot. So if you, if you are uncomfortable, it doesn't mean you have to be this wild extrovert, but if you're uncomfortable, just being in a room with, you know, eight people that you don't know, you know, that's going to tell me something about, yep. so I yeah. don't know. I don't know how to prevent it. I hope I don't ever do it again, but. Uh,
0: I mean. Um, Look, we're all, we're all making mistakes, but I, I, I think that that idea of multiple people assessing, thinking about, and, you know, so that you can minimize blind spots.
1: Yes. Because you'll
0: never be able to get rid of them. That's right. It's it's just, I mean, it's, it's, that's why it's called, you know, it's like this inherent bias, right? You just, and you learn to be aware of it, but you can't get rid of it. That's right. And so I, I think that that's a great way to to think about that. Um, any any final thoughts or stories that you um, that we haven't talked about that you'd like to share with the audience? Something that we can learn from or um, anything out there? I mean, I just I I think that your your um, the way that you are talking about and 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 t- thinking about how you are as a leader and what your organ what you want for your organization i think is just really rare and um is it's so you know having that awareness is so spectacular and i think you're reaping obviously the benefits because it is hard library systems this is your you know everybody and anybody can show up at the door and there you have 12 doors you know 12 buildings and they can want anything from you and you don't know so to be able to 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 prep your staff and to be able to to invest in that you know what you're talking about a four-year journey of like you know that's a long-term investment and a lot of a lot of leaders aren't able to think that long term and so i i don't know i just want to call out how how awesome that is um, to see someone like you modeling that uh, leadership kind of behavior.
1: Well, it's an thank you for saying that because it does feel, um, you know and, I, and that four year piece of just kind of redefining who we were, were just was just the beginning. Because here's the thing is we're always hiring new people that we've got to figure out how to get in the door, understand who we are. And even if you've worked in another library before, you haven't worked at this library. So it's you know it's like, or, or even if you've done adjacent work, it's like, what's different about us? And I mean, we've, we were in a hiring freeze last year because our budget was so tight. We had fewer people leave last year than in the great resignation, even when they were strapped. So that tells us something about the culture here is that mm. they were willing to work twice as hard and be short staffed for the short term to stay here. Um, so we've hired almost 80 new staff members since February. That's a lot for an organization of mine. That's, That's a ton, lot. And so, trying to figure out, okay, how do we make sure that the onboarding is what we need it to be? How do we make sure that people understand? Um, that we want them to make good decisions on the front line, that we trust their judgment. And, you know, and I, I do listening sessions with staff. So I just had one this morning where I just go out, anybody can come and I'm in a branch for two hours and they just come talk to me and ask me questions and tell me about their experience. And then we kind of put together all the trends and themes and that helps us operationalize the culture. Like we just, you know, we do open PTO, we have hundred percent paid FMLA now. All of these things have come from, us being caring, welcoming, committed to the best, fresh and fun, and helpful, and those are our brand promises—not just to the public, but to our staff. So it's just—I love that it's never finished. It's never finished, you know. And if I said it was, I would—you know—it—it would—it gets stale, you know. You have to keep care and feeding of the culture. And that means yep. you just double down on the things that are important and operate. And I keep saying operationalize and that could be a whole nother conversation for another day. <laughs> but I do think that our we a lot of us get hung up with policies and procedures, you know, and we want everything to be the same and consistent across the board but that is a surefire way to smother the culture of caring and innovation. So let's figure out how to have those procedures and policies that we really need and just get rid of the rest of them. Um, And we're always doing that. We're not there yet. We're working on it.
0: (laughs) Melanie Huggins, uh, (laughs) Executive Director of Richland Library in South Carolina. Um, you can uh, learn and visit um, Richland Library and of any of the 12 branches, but you can visit online, richlandlibrary.com, R-I-C-H-L-A-N-D, library.com. Melanie, thank you so much for sharing your uh, expertise and modeling, uh, leadership. Uh, this There's just so many amazing things um, that, that you have shared today, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It
1: was a lot of fun. Thanks, Josh.
0: Thanks for listening to Great Mondays Radio. Hey, if you want to be a guest, head over to greatmondays.com/radio. We'd love to hear from you. And if you think this episode was interesting and your friends and fans would enjoy it, please share on social media. And if you want to get more people to understand the power of company culture in business today, please rate and review great mondays radio on your podcasts app or podcast feed it really helps us reach more people if you want to make sure to hear more candid conversations with culture leaders subscribe to great mondays radio and i'd love to connect with you find me on linkedin at aka josh levine on youtube at great mondays And you can always email me, josh at greatmondays.com. Find out more about our work with hypergrowth technology and social enterprise organizations or grab a copy of our book at greatmondays.com. I'm Josh Levine. Thanks for listening to Great Mondays Radio.